welcome to the White House. Uh, thank you, Sana, for your incredible work. Uh, Ms. Marvel may be your comic book creation, but I think for a lot of young boys and girls, Sana's a real-life superhero. There are a lot of them in this room. Hey y'all, and welcome to Unladylike, the show that finds out what happens when women break the rules. I'm Kristen. I'm Caroline, and today's guest has been described as the Shonda Rhimes of Marvel Comics and a straight-up superhero by President Obama. No big deal. Okay, so hi. I My name is Sana Amanath. I am the VP of Content and Character Development at Marvel Entertainment. Super fancy title, but not a fancy person. And I uh, live in New York City. That's where the Marvel headquarters are. I will not say specifically where because I have a lot of people who don't like me out there. <laughs> so I'm going to keep it vague as possible. Okay, when you say there are a lot of people out there who don't like you, are you, are you referring to like angry fanboys? Oh, yes. <laughs> I mean, girls too. I'm sure there's some girls out there who don't like me. But uh, I think, <laughs> yeah, just, d- d- just angry fans, period, who might not like what I've brought to the table or what I represent. I'm not sure. What Sunny represents is a feminist sea change in the mainstream comics industry. And that sea change is a really big deal because, Caroline, the big two, so to speak, in the industry are DC and Marvel. And they have been overwhelmingly dominated by dudes since forever. And even still, as of 2017, just over a quarter of their featured characters are female. But... During Sunna's time with Marvel, the company has debuted, rebooted, and promoted a record number of leading female characters, including Captain Marvel, She-Hulk, Miss America, who is not a beauty queen, Scarlet Witch, Thor, also not a dude, and the first all-female X-Men team. And y'all, Sana also played a super important part in rebooting the new Ms. Marvel. From a blonde in a bathing suit to a Muslim New Jersey teenager named Kamala Khan. Yeah, and listen, I'm going to be honest, Caroline, superheroes are not (laughs) super in my (laughs) wheelhouse. However, one of my new fave facts about you Mm -hmm. is that uh, you're kind of a Marvel fangirl. Yeah, sort of accidentally. I was not really a superhero person growing up. I did not read comic books, uh, but... Starting with, like, the first Iron Man movie, like, 20 Marvel movies ago, I now will not let a superhero movie go by without seeing it. Yeah. Do you, do you show up on opening night? Oh, I have been known to show up on an opening night or two. So naturally, Kristen, I was pumped to talk to Sana today about how growing up with a bunch of brothers prepared her to navigate Marvel's super bros and how she's helping to lead an inclusive superhero revolution. Plus, we'll dig back into comics history to learn why it's taken so long for female superheroes to claim their space in the Marvel universe. It's all to find out. How do you create an actually feminist superhero? I've actually been in the the comics industry for like 13 years. So it just feels like I've been here for much of my life. Let's say half my life. Let's say I'm I'm 26. (laughs) (laughs) 
go with that. I like that. <laughs> wow. That's great that you were able to get that job at 13 years old. You know? <laughs> yeah. I know. That's I know. really I'm, cool. Hell of a resume. Sana is celebrating her 10-year anniversary at Marvel this year. Before that, she spent three years at a smaller indie label, Virgin Comics. Now, her job at Marvel has meant all kinds of things over the years, from actually editing comic books, which involves basically bringing together all the different elements of a comic book, from the story, the artists, the writers, to co-hosting the Women of Marvel podcast with Judy Stevens. Hey, it's Judy. Hey, it's Sana. It's the 50th anniversary of Carol Danvers. It is. And I'm obviously very excited about it because I have been... And in her role as a VP, Sana essentially helps oversee and strategize how characters and franchises can evolve across the entire Marvel Universe. And that's not just the comic books. Like, that includes movies, merch, like everything. But Sana's position isn't one she always imagined herself in. Like, the whole DC Marvel Comics world has a long-standing boys' club reputation, for one thing. Plus, superhero comics weren't really her thing growing up, but not because she didn't like them. Yeah, like, as a kid, she was just more interested in comic strips. Like, I was reading Archie Comics, Calvin and Hobbes, Sabrina, like, a lot of the more more sort of girl-friendly mainstream comic stuff out there. Um, So I wasn't as, like, I loved it, but I didn't feel like the superhero world was, like, my world yet. I I discovered superhero comics later in life, and my goal since then has been how do you make sure that you make comics and Marvel comics as accessible as possible because there are people like me out there who like it but who never, who just don't know the way in. Sana discovered superheroes thanks to one of her brothers. He was really into comics and would just regale her with all the Batman storylines and give her, like, the background of all the X-Men mutants. And those X-Men mutants really got Sana's wheels turning. I was probably, like, 11, 10 or 11, when the the X-Men cartoon came out um, in the 90s, and it was, like the coolest thing I had ever experienced. It was super fun. The stories were, like, you know, engaging, high-flying. They had the the most, like, diverse roster of characters than any of the other series out there. Totally fell in love with superheroes then. Okay, now, Kristen, I don't know how much you know about X-Men. It's not a lot. It's not a lot. But I got to tell you, Sana is absolutely right about the whole diversity thing. Like, for one, you've got Storm, who's the first black woman superhero who can control the fucking skies, y'all. Swirl, mighty winds, and carry us to Jean. Then you've got Professor X, who's in a wheelchair and basically the world's most powerful mind reader. It's an almost gender equal crew. Well, Caroline... I also learned about one of the X-Men writers from the 70s, this guy, Chris Claremont, who really elevated the X-Men as social commentary. So, like, the anti-mutant prejudice that the X-Men are always contending with was meant as a metaphor for, like, IRL racism and bigotry. Well, that's also a big part of why Sana was so captivated by this superhero story in particular. Who were misfits, who were misunderstood, who looked really strange, and who ended up kind of, like, coming together because of that. Coming together because they were all, like, a bunch of, you know, strange weirdos that society didn't like. Um, But outside of them just coming together, they decided 
to do good. Senator Kelly must be rescued. If we fail, there will be a civil war. These strange powers that they had were for the best, and they made something good with it. What's anybody waiting for? He needs us. Sit down, kid. You're not going. I'm not a kid anymore. I'm one of you, one of the X-Men, and it means more to me than anything in the world. Yeah, that's what it means to me, too. But the characters themselves and what they represented really translated to, you know, the minority story, to, you know, anyone who felt like they didn't really belong. And Kristen, that is exactly how Sana felt at 10 or 11 years old when she was 90s-style binge-watching the X-Men cartoons. I mean, to start, like, she was the only girl in her family with three older brothers. I used to do a skit when I was younger. I was probably, like, six years old. And, like, walk into the kitchen and just, like, do a skit about how I couldn't do anything, but my brothers could do everything. And it was as simple as, like, they could <laughs> they could walk to 7-Eleven by themselves at night. Or, no, at any time. And I could not. Um, and I was—because, like, the only thing to do in Jersey was go to 7-Eleven when you're, like, seven years old. So um, it was, like, the hot thing. <laughs> and so I used to do that. And, like, my parents used to laugh because I was— I was I was calling out the inherent hypocrisy of my brothers being able to do everything and me not being able to do anything. Sana's parents emigrated from Pakistan to the U.S. before she was born. Her family was one of the only South Asian Muslim families in their New Jersey suburb. And they ended up creating a mosque and community center in their town. But after the 1993 World Trade Center bombing, kids at Sana's middle school started to turn on her because of her religion. One kid even said, hey, tell your people to stop attacking us. That middle school racism, plus just generally feeling like an outsider, really made Sana feel defensive and, like, a little insecure. I was very much a weird kid. And, um, you know, I, I remember always looking at sort of the the other girls in my class in particular and thinking, like, oh, my God, like, they're dressed so prettily and look at their hair and, you know, like, look at their 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 lunch. And girls who, who, who seem to have a pretty idyllic um, life and who didn't have to worry about, you know, sort of the the Muslimness or their religion kind of creeping into the way they conducted their everyday life. So that group of X-Men misfits embracing their differences and fighting for justice, it really stuck out to Sana. And it was a really important message um, for me as a young person to take in, to be, to say, okay, I might be different, but you know, not only is that okay, that's actually pretty incredible. Like, what am I going to do with these differences? One thing she did was in high school, Sana started an organization to connect Muslim youth across northern New Jersey. Then in college, she joined an Indian dance team. It was experiences like these, like connecting with other people who looked like her, that helped Sana feel more confident about who she was. I really began to own that um, and become, you know, sort of wear my culture on my sleeve and be proud of my religion as much as, like, society was telling me not to. And she needed that confidence when she started working in the comics industry right out of college. Because, again, she didn't fit the stereotype of some comic book diehard. 
it was very much a boys club. It was very much like, what do you actually know about Marvel Comics? Like, I would go to the events and people would be like, what are you doing here? Like, people le- legitimately didn't think that I was an editor. They just thought, because you go to Comic-Cons and they hire a bunch of actors, a bunch of people just to kind of promote the product. And they're like, oh, you're not in it. You're just a superficial thing, you know? Like, um, and it was hard for me to feel like, oh, People don't want me here. Luckily, Sunna had a dope mentor at Virgin Comics, an editor named Mackenzie Cadenhead. She taught Sunna all about comic book editing, like how to maintain the vision and scope of a project, the importance of choosing the right artists and writers. But after Virgin Comics shuttered, Sunna wasn't so sure she wanted to stick around in the industry. I decided I wasn't going to go back to comics. I was going to do something else. Um, And while I was figuring that out, you know, some time went by, but Marvel ended up approaching me and saying, like, you got to do this. Like, we have a job for you. You have to do this. You already know how to make comics. But Sana wasn't immediately sold. She talked with Marvel's editor-in-chief at the time, Joe Casada, now their chief creative officer, about her doubts. I was like, well, I don't feel like I can do this. And um, he was like, look, it's okay that you don't have the experience that other people have. He's like, we want that. He's like, your voice is going to be distinct from everybody else who's probably working at the company right now. And that's what we need. Like, that's the only way that Marvel is going to change is if we bring in different voices. Um, And that kind of gave me the push I needed to eventually like say, okay, fine, I'm going to take a job at Marvel. And the rest is the rest is kind of history. Sana still had to learn how to hold her own in such a male-dominated field. Yeah, so for context, there's this blog called Comics Beat, and they crunched the numbers for 2018 Marvel and DC comic book credits, and they found that men made up more than 80% of the creative and editorial teams at both publishers. Did growing up uh, with all brothers prepare you in any kind of way for navigating like such a super boys clubby environment like you were describing? Yes. <laughs> Most definitely. I think like having brothers has made me a lot more thick skinned, has made me understand how to navigate, you know, really all kinds of egos in general, you know, and it, and it made me understand like how to talk to men, how to talk to boys, but also still maintain my own sort of integrity and identity and talk with confidence um, and understand, you know, just the psychology of men. And just because they're saying something doesn't mean it's actually, like, correct or that you have to agree with them, (laughs) you know, because I still think I'm smarter than all of my brothers. (laughs) And that probably helps. Um, You know, when I'm in meetings, for the most part, especially because I'm more, I have more of a senior position now, I am the only woman in the room, you know, and then on top of it, the only, like, brown woman and, person of color and all that stuff. So there's a lot of layers to it. I think understanding how to push back when you vehemently disagree with something that the collective is saying, I do feel like I can say, well, I know more about this because you have no idea and talk shit back a little bit, which was very hard to do initially. Um, but now, like, I talk shit left and right, and it's it's great. It's very easy, and they respect me for it. It's, it's definitely something that um, I'm not afraid of doing anymore. 
What can I ask? Like, what shifted? You talked about how you had some self doubts before you started at Marvel, and this person who was like, "Hey, listen, we do need your voice, your perspective." Um, how long did it take to sort of shake some of those self doubts off? And do you ever feel like? Do you ever revisit those feelings? Oh my God, yes. Um, you know, it, it it took a while. I'll I'll be honest with you, like. The first thing I did when I came to Marvel was, like, I tried to read as much as I possibly could because I'm like, oh, I don't know as much as everybody does, so I'm going to try to catch up. Um, And, of course, I didn't. I didn't catch up with everybody. I can't. It's too hard. There's too much going on. There's a big vastness to the Marvel universe um, that that is, is hard to keep up with. But I think what I got from that was I understood sort of the core identity of our characters and what... Marvel represents um, because it really innately connects with me. You know, we have inherently been a company that has celebrated all kinds of heroes. Like, I think inclusivity, you know, diverse heroes, all of that has just been the nature of the Marvel universe. So I think it's it's just it's a it's a combination of a lot of those those different elements and also kind of ultimately listening to myself and my instinct and my inner confidence and trying to kind of to bring that out. Self-doubt is always going to be there, and you feel like, you know, did I actually, am I actually really good at this? Like, am I just faking it? Like, you know, am I, have I been BSing my my way through my entire career? Um, because BS is a part of it. That is a skill set that I think everyone should have. <laughs> um, you know, like, bu- bullshit, bullshit your way until you can actually, until you're actually a real, a real aficionado. An aficionado who can alter the entire Marvel Universe! (laughs) See, am I getting into it, Caroline? You're so into it. And we're going to hear about the rad superheroes that Sana's brought to life. But first, we're going to dig into the origin story of some of our feminist superheroes. That's coming up after the break. We're back, and it's time to unravel how that alien force called feminism got all tangled up in the superhero universe. Because while there have been plenty of superpowered women in comics since the early 1940s, they weren't exactly super feminist. Oh, God, no. The superhero comics universe is so packed with sexist claptrap, it could honestly feel like a whole other universe. Let's unpack it. Unpack the Claptrap is the part of the show where we hunt down patriarchy supervillains to find out why things are the way they are. And we want to know how comics have evolved and expanded to make room for superwomen like the ones Sana's had a hand in creating, starting in the golden age of comic books, the 1940s. Okay, Caroline, I am a superhero noob, but... It's okay. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> but I still know a couple of things. Like, first... Comic books really started as a form of mass media entertainment. Like, it's worth keeping in mind, in the 1940s, like, pretty evenly split girls and boys were reading comic books. Like, something upwards of 80 to 90 percent of girls under 17 regularly Hmm. read comic books during the day, which is cool. Um, And we also know that, like other forms of mass media entertainment— comic books really reflected the cultural trends and gender roles of the time. 
I also know, though, that mainstream women superheroes have been created, written, and killed off pretty much exclusively by dudes. Oh, yeah. And that male gaze shows, y'all. Like, when you look back at our first ever super women, they were all essentially, like, blonde, busty, sexy uh, jungle women. Yeah, they were really obsessed with uh, with jungle women in particular. Uh, the first, I think, official female superhero was uh, this one called <laughs> Phantoma, Mystery Woman of the Jungle. And she came swinging into the comic books industry <laughs> in 1940. Yeah, according to her official description, she's the most remarkable woman that ever lived, devotes her supernatural powers to protecting the jungle. And the jungle born. Now, while I can't speak for Phantoma herself, I will say that the storyline of Phantoma, Mystery Woman of the Jungle, uh, might be way more overtly racist than sexist because the quote unquote jungle born, this blonde white lady is always protecting, are basically the primitive brown folks who cannot do for themselves. Oh, yikes! No, no thank you. No, thank you, Phantoma. But she really does have a beef with white men. I mean, I will say she takes out most of her rage specifically on white dudes, so there, <laughs> there is that. But the mere fact, though, Caroline, that, that comics were featuring female superheroes instead of, you know, just women who happen to be girlfriends, sidekicks, or secretaries, like, it was an upgrade in not entirely by coincidence. Exactly. And the so-called golden age of comics really took place during the World War II era. And the whole Rosie the Riveter can-do spirit inspired a whole new cast of female superheroes. Not only our girl Phantoma, but also Sheena, Queen of the Jungle, and Lady Satan, who surprisingly was not a villain. But of course, the most famous and indefinitely the most feminist superhero born during that golden age of comics was Diana Prince, a.k.a. Gal Gadot, a.k.a. Wonder Woman. And she was created in 1941 by this dude named William Moulton Marston, who TLDR definitely <laughs> fancied himself a feminist. And seriously, you should read all all about the backstory in Jill Lepore's fabulous book, The Secret History of Wonder Woman. But Caroline, for a sampling of his brand of superhero feminism, let's take a look at some advice that Wonder Woman gives in an early panel. Okay, so she's talking to these three women who are in chains. She says, oh, you stupid girls, when you let your men bind you, you let yourself be bound by war, hate, greed, and lust for power. Think and free yourselves. Control those who would oppress others. You can do it. You can do it. <laughs> um, so Wonder Woman was originally super woke. Like, in her early days, she was a super patriotic, intelligent woman who could take care of herself and kill a fuck ton of Nazis. Yeah, like you should. But also like her fellow crime fighters, Wonder Woman got a major demotion in the post-war years. So while Rosie the Riveters were being sent back home, female superheroes were also being relegated to more gender-traditional sidekick and love interest roles. Yeah, even Wonder Woman was kind of just like re-demoted down to Diana Prince, who had a lot of boy troubles during the 50s. But what happens to feminist superheroes when the actual feminist movement of the 1970s comes along? Uh, some not terribly original storylines? The comics industry definitely capitalized on the women's lib movement. Like, in the early 70s, you see this trend of basically just pinkwashing existing male superheroes with characters like Spider-Woman and 
She-Hulk. And fun fact, Caroline, in 1972, you get the first issue of Ms. Magazine, featuring none other than DC Comics' leading lady Wonder Woman on the cover. And then, just five years later, Marvel comes along and is like, oh, why don't we create Ms. Marvel, a feminist superheroine for the time? She lands her first solo issue in 1977, but that's not exactly where her story begins, right? Yeah, so let's do a quick backtrack. Ms. Marvel's storyline actually starts with the character Carol Danvers. When we first see Carol, it is 1968, and she's an Air Force officer who also happens to be the love interest of Captain Marvel, the original one, who is a man. So she starts out kind of as like a girlfriend sidekick? She's just this blonde lady. Who's in the Air Force? Named Carol. Named Carol. Carol. And so, like you said, Kristen, it's not until 1977 that Carol gets her own book, but she also gets her own powers, thanks to this explosion that turns Carol into Ms. Marvel. But Caroline, uh, Ms. Marvel is supposed to be, you know, this feminist superhero, but her costume is not exactly practical. Um, on the cover of the first issue of Ms. Marvel, she's wearing a long-sleeved crop top with a cape and high-heeled boots. And it's funny, I do love that no matter what kind of costume she's in, she was still so closely associated with that like feminist, progressive movement that was happening at the same time. Like, for instance, her alter ego, Carol Danvers, ends up getting a job at Woman Magazine And she successfully negotiates a higher salary. Oh, superheroes leaning in. Okay. (laughs) But on the cover of Ms. Marvel number one, they advertise, at last, a bold new superheroine in the stunning tradition of Spider-Man. However, I don't think Spider-Man ever had to negotiate for his salary. Mm. But Caroline, what was her superpower skill set? Right. So aside from negotiating higher salaries and rocking a crop top, she just had some basic stuff like, you know, superhuman strength and stamina, a seventh sense. Wait, a seventh? Yeah, we don't know. We don't know. So she can see dead people and... (laughs) She can sense, yeah, when her period's coming. She never is wearing white pants on the wrong day. And she has a resistance to poisons, just to round that out. And it wasn't until a little bit later that she eventually got the power to travel at light speed, survive in space, and, you know, shoot energy out of her fingertips. Again, just the basics. But those superpowers, Caroline, were no match for the comic book patriarchy. Like, the most disturbing example of what has gone wrong with all of these female superheroes being created exclusively by dudes and really for dudes for a while is what went down with Ms. Marvel in 1980. Essentially, the all-male Marvel staff at the time decided that for this anniversary issue of The Avengers, a really compelling plotline would be... The Rape of Ms. Marvel. Long story short, she is mysteriously impregnated, has this baby who quickly grows into this man who then sweeps her off into some other universe and rapes her via mind control. And then, though, at the end of the issue, Ms. Marvel decides to run away with her son-slash-rapist It's super fucked up and honestly really disturbing to even read today, Caroline. Yeah, no joke. And the 80s and 90s weren't a great time for female superheroes at large anyway. Their hypersexualization and victimization really peaks around this time. 
So what's going to happen to Ms. Marvel in our search for an actually feminist superhero? And what does Sana have to do with all of this? Don't worry, we're going to get y'all all caught up right after the break. We're back. And before we return to our girl, Sana Amanath, we should be clear about something. In the various comic book universes, it's super common for characters, storylines, and even the universes themselves to be constantly evolving and expanding. Characters might be gender-swapped or ethnicity-swapped, powers get boosted and changed, and Ms. Marvel, thank goodness, considering what just happened— is no different. Yeah, like our girl Carol was not done evolving in the 80s. In July 2012, Sana swoops in and helps Carol ditch the Miz and get promoted to Captain Marvel. Okay, so Carol Danvers first becomes Ms. Marvel and then she becomes Captain Marvel. Am yes, I tracking? Yes. Okay. And Kristen, everything about this reinvention was deliberate, like just as it had been when she got her own book in the 1970s. This time, though, Sana was the editor, Kelly Sue DeConnick was the writer, and this team together was like, all right, enough with the wishy-washy powers and enough with that tiny-ass little costume. Like, let's give this girl a practical suit that actually covers her full body and allows her to run. Yes, something fitting of a captain. In addition to Kelly Sue DeConnick, Sana says that editor Steve Wacker was also very instrumental in igniting that Carol Danvers reinvention. At that point, they weren't doing many, like, female-led titles, and they were trying to evaluate Carol Danvers and him thinking, like, I don't have a character out there that I want to be able to give to my daughter. The team was really thoughtful about how to bring her back. It wasn't just like, oh, give her a makeover and we're done. Like, they asked the important questions. What does she represent and what do her powers mean and what is her history and how much do we have to include her history in our everyday life and how is that relevant to what women are actually experiencing and, you know, what are the stories that women actually want to read because this is the book that people are going to be picking up who are women and that's what we saw. Um, So there is a little bit of like who is the audience now? Who are characters that we think are going to resonate and connect with them? And what is their current iteration? And now, with her, like, energy shooting out of her fingertips and flying around in space, Captain Marvel is one of the universe's most powerful heroes. Like, she's more powerful than Captain America. Oh, take that handsome white man who plays him. (laughs) When this character was updated, it was more about owning those powers and owning the fact that she could stand side by side with Iron Man or Hulk Um, or Captain America and be just as strong, if not stronger, than a lot of them. And she's not, like, running around in heels, (laughs) which is great. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's super, super easy to run around in heels and kick kick ass. Like, <laughs> God, I was like, I was like walking in heels yesterday for a block and I was like going to die. I'm like, no, yeah, it turns out that work. her superpower is actually just that her feet and ankles are made of steel. Like, <laughs> everything else is normal. <laughs> Um, oh, I mean, hey, that's a that is a great comic. That is a great bizarre <laughs> comic. I love, I love You're it. welcome. That'll be five thousand dollars. Yeah. 
So Carol Danvers, formerly known as Ms. Marvel, gets elevated to Captain Marvel, and this creates an opening for someone else to become Ms. Marvel. So cut to that editor, Steve Wacker, that we mentioned earlier. You know, he and Sunna were always working together, and she would talk to him a lot about her childhood and, like, what it was like for her growing up in Jersey, going to her family's community center and mosque, and, like, learning how to embrace her Muslim heritage and like this horrifying era of Islamophobia. And so one day, Steve's listening to her and he's like, well, can we make a character for the young Sanas of the world? And Sana takes that idea and runs with it. She pulled together artist Adrian Alfona and Muslim writer G. Willow Wilson. And in 2014, together, they introduced one of Marvel's most globally successful new comic book characters, Kamala Khan. Kamala is a Pakistani-American 16-year-old. She lives in Jersey City. She's Muslim. She's kind of an outsider. Is some of this starting to sound familiar? She also idolizes Carol Danvers and Captain Marvel. So when Kamala first emerges with her new superpowers, she adopts her idol's former name, Ms. Marvel. And at first, Sana and her team were a little nervous to present Kamala to Marvel executives. Like, they were a little afraid she'd be considered too niche or too political. But the committee got it. When we were trying to figure out the mission statement, it was like, what does it come down to? Like, it just comes down to, you know, a young girl figuring out who she is. And I think that is a universal idea. I don't think that's just a thing that if you're brown, I mean, it's heightened when you're brown, sure. But I I think everyone can kind of relate to that. And so the idea when we finally figured out, like, what is the story of Kamala? The story was very much a simple one of her saying, what am I? Who am I? And her deciding, you know, to be Ms. Marvel on her own terms to kind of embrace things that she's loved, but still be, you know, a proud brown woman hero. And I think the story of Ms. Marvel um, is her negotiating that, but her kind of embracing all of it together and saying, this is me. Yeah, so while Ms. Marvel is without a doubt a superhero, she's a superhero with exaggerated teen awkwardness. Like, she can stretch her body into any size and shape she wants, but it takes her a minute to figure out how to control it. You know, she's kind of clumsy. And her costume manages to both, like, reflect the modesty culture of her faith while also still serving as a superhero costume. And so there are elements in terms of the lightning bolt and the sash around her neck um, and and the mask, all that. There's a lot of stuff from her classic costume, but we updated it and we wanted to make sure there was sort of this South Asian influence in her look, more of like an Indo-Western spin on a superhero costume. And so the top is meant to look like, you know, a chemise, like the top of a of an Indian outfit, the pants are the bottom of like this Indian outfit, which are which are kind of fitted, and she has her bangles, which is a part of her cultural history, like her, her family. It's part of her family. So there's a little bit of that in there. There's a little bit of Carol Danvers' like current and old costume, and I think we sort of tried to integrate everything into this modern day look. Um, and you know, it's one of those that we were, we've always struggled. We're like, oh, do we update it? Do we change it? Because it looks very homemade, and we wanted it to look homemade. Um, but it's been pretty successful. It's pretty pretty cool to see uh, people at Comic-Cons, like, make it themselves, and it, they just look so cool. 
The comic books were instant hits. Like, the series broke publishing records left and right. It landed on the New York Times bestseller list and won a Hugo Award for Best Graphic Story in 2015. And like we mentioned at the top of the show, Marvel has been on a tear lately in terms of reimagining and promoting more inclusive superheroes. Maybe I'm biased. I do believe, like, Kamala Khan was really, like, the instigator for a lot of that. There's a character... America Chavez that was reimagined in the last few years, and she is a fantastic character, but her original iteration was, you know, was called Ms. America, and she was a a white blonde character. I think she was blonde, blonde character. This idea of being like, well, what does it mean? What does the name America mean? And who is Ms. America? And why doesn't it make sense for a Lanx character to, to encompass that role? Or to have young black women encompass roles as tech geniuses. Like, thanks to Nettie Okorafor, who's a sci-fi writer and Afrofuturist writer, we're getting a comic book series dedicated to Black Panther's genius sister Shuri. And author Eve Ewing has been working on Ironheart, which is this series about Iron Man's teenage protege, a fellow inventor genius named Riri Williams. In other words, America, Kamala, Captain Marvel... Like, all of this is just the start of the superhero revolution that Sana is really helping lead in the Marvel Universe. Yes, and not just female superheroes. Like, what it means to have a character pull back their mask and you think it's Spider-Man, but it's not. It is Miles Morales. And he is, you know, half Latino, half black. And what does that mean for young kids of color? Um, To have a character like Kamala come out there and her represent, you know, this old legacy character and have the company name in her code name. Um, mm-hmm. And her happened to be this young South Asian Muslim girl. Like, what does that mean? What is that that cultural impact? And that conversation that people have been having, I think, in the last five years, and I'm now I'm seeing it everywhere. I'm seeing it, obviously, in entertainment across the board. Um, I mean, the, the most exciting thing for me was like when Spider-Verse came out. And- Here, she's talking about the 2018 movie Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, which brought Miles Morales and a whole bunch of other spider people and one spider pig to animated life. Them literally saying that in the movie about saying, like, anyone can be a hero. And we have been talking about that since the inception of Miles, since the inception of, of Kamala Khan. And now that's happening in such a big way across the world. Um, and so for me, it was like when that moment happened, I was like, I'm taking a victory lap. Like, I'm like, thank like, this is what <laughs> we have been saying. And we believe it to be true. And I think it's powerful across the board when you're telling any kinds of stories. I think it's incredibly important to make sure that with stories about heroes and aspirational characters who are doing important things, that they truly be representative of marginalized communities because those communities really do need it. And if people are looking at us for entertainment and for inspiration, um, then what are we giving them back? So, Kristen, what do you feel you've learned about, like, the evolution of what Sana and Marvel are giving back? Uh, well, I've learned that President Obama is right. Sana is a real-life superhero because not only did her, like, lived experiences inspire Kamala Khan slash Ms. Marvel, but also I just really gravitated toward the whole concept of like what are you going to do with your differences Mm. and seeing those differences as 
the superpower, you know, um, because a lot of times, like, we think of these superpowers and superheroes as something beyond human, things to strive for, when it seems like, from Sana's perspective, it's about what you are going to do with the things that you already possess. Caroline, I'm super curious to know from you, what are you most excited about? Okay, I, I gotta tell you, you know, after I watched this this last Marvel movie, Endgame, I, I did have the thought of like, what is next? I'm used to like every six months or a year at least going to see like an awesome Marvel movie. Uh, but I gotta say, on the horizon, I have heard gossip mm-hmm. that Mindy Kaling is deeply interested in Kamala slash Ms. Marvel. Ooh, into like developing that into a film? Yes. I mean, uh, well, as far as I know, she's just like interested in the storyline and would like to be involved somehow. So I'm hoping that like the next time we see a badass superhero flying around on screen, it's Kamala. I mean, the combo of Sana and Mindy Kaling, just two badass Women of color, superheroes of color, making the media that needs to be in the world. Um, that's giving me goosebumps, at least in, in my right leg, just on my right side. I don't know what's up with that. But. That's your popcorn arm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know. It sounds like we need a movie night. <laughs> sounds like it. Okay, y'all. So who are your favorite superheroes? Or what's your favorite comic book? Head on over to our private Facebook group and share away. We've got a thread in there about this very episode, so join the conversation. You can find Sana on Twitter at MiniB622 and go check out her Women of Marvel podcast. Caroline and I are on a future episode number deal. You can also email us at hello at unladylike.co or find us on all the socials at Unladylike Media. You can grab some Unladylike merch and sign up for our newsletter where you'll get good news about women in the world delivered every Wednesday. It's all over there at unladylike.co. Abigail Keel is a senior producer of Unladylike. Nora Ritchie is our associate producer. Gianna Palmer is our story editor. Ash Sanders transcribes our tape. Our music is by Flamingo Shadow, Amit May Cohen, and Sarah Tudson. Mixing, sound design, and additional music is by Casey Holford. Our executive producers are Chris Bannon and Daisy Rosario. Special thanks to Persia Verlin at Marvel. And we're your hosts, Caroline Irvin and Kristen Conger. Next week... Thanks to the efforts of this city council... We are lucky to have strong protections for women and trans and gender nonconforming folks in the city at large. But our schools and the 1.1 million New Yorkers who attend them every day are being left out. We're digging into a piece of super important legislation called Title IX. Like, did y'all know it applies to high schools? Yeah, we didn't either. And y'all, if you can't wait until next week for more on Ladylike, sign up for Stitcher Premium. We released an entire pep talk series over there featuring some of our favorite rad folks like model and activist Rain Dove, writer Ashley Ford, and Forever 35 podcast host Dory Shafrir. The entire series is out right now, so go over and binge all 12 episodes. Go to stitcher.com premium and use code unladylike for a month of free listening. Make sure you're subscribed to Unladylike in Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. And remember, got a problem? Get unladylike. Do superheroes get periods? Probably not. Because I'm thinking about those suits they wear. <laughs> and I hope that they have a flap. <laughs> Stitcher. 
I'm standing outside Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. Inside, there are like a trillion objects, and I have to go in there and find 10. So we open a drawer here, and there's Indiana Jones's jacket and Indiana Jones's whip. What is this? Now Prince donated this guitar. <gasps> I'm Asif Manvi, and I am lost at the Smithsonian. Where do I begin? This place is obviously full of fascinating stuff. Fonzie's jacket, right. worn by Henry Winkler on Happy Days. There are 156 million objects in the Smithsonian's collections. Here are Muppets. These aren't just objects. They're pieces of America's self-identity. I'm looking at a, a robe with the name Muhammad Ali. Only 10 episodes, only 10 objects. That's pretty amazing. Lost of the Smithsonian is out now. Subscribe now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen.